this morning we hope to consider verse 9 to 11 of James chapter 1 and I have titled the message how to glory in God how to glory in God and the first thing I'd like you to see in verse 9 is the glory of the poor man the glory of the poor man and then secondly in verse 10 we see the glory of the rich man the glory of the rich man and then thirdly verse 11 we'll seek to see the glory of each of us the glory of each of us James, as we know, is a pastor of the first Christian church in Jerusalem and is writing this letter to those who are scattered. Probably they are scattered because of persecution. And the first encouragement we saw in verse 2 is as they go through persecution, what attitude do they require? Joy. They are to go through a trial with all joy, with eager anticipation of what God intends to do in the midst of their difficulty. And then verse 3 we saw, you go through a trial with an understanding mind. What do you understand? What are you looking forward to? You're looking forward to the testing of your faith. And what does that produce? and produce steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. And then we saw verse 4, the benefit of that uh, trial. What does it do? It helps us to grow to spiritual maturity. The person becomes perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then last week, we began looking verse 5 to 8. And here he instructs his readers, his audience, to ask for wisdom in the midst of a trial. A trial is a test, and oftentimes we are confused, we don't know what to do. And he tells his audience, when you don't know what to do, God is there to listen to you. And we saw two things there, to ask, and then secondly, verse 6, to ask in faith. And we defined what asking in faith is. We defined asking in faith as asking knowing that God is able. Asking knowing that God is willing. Asking knowing that God is consistent with his word. Asking knowing that he is trustworthy. And then we saw the picture there, powerful picture of a double-minded man. And we say that a double-minded man is... A person who is looking, it's a picture of someone who is looking at two directions at the same time. And this person is not singular in his devotion to the Lord. And the Bible defines him as unstable in all his ways. Any circumstances that come his way, any storm and currents of life, they come and sweep him. 
because he's not singular in mind. He's not willing to do the will of the Lord. He may be willing to do the will of the Lord, but his devotion is compromised so that he's, he's weighing up between two options. A double-minded man. And today we begin verse 9. And this text helps us to deal with the issue of poverty and wealth. And it shows us as children of God, how do we respond to poverty, to wealth? Notice first of all the paradox of the rich and the poor. So a paradox is a, paradox is a statement that seems to be contradictory, but, but upon closer examination, it proves to be true. And the paradox there is one of a lowly brother is instructed to boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And let me ask if human beings are equal in the eyes of the Lord, why are there inequalities in terms of wealth? You see, communism will tell you that the reason why there is inequality in the world is because of greed and oppression and they say that inequality is caused by the wickedness of the heart of the rich the communists will often say that the poor are not wicked it's only the rich and the remedy for this inequality is to take wealth from the rich and give it to the poor and then capitalism will say that the reason why there is inequality in the world is because there are some areas where there is productivity than others. There are some areas where there are resources which can be manufactured and multiplied by human means of production. And no one needs to be poor. Christianity looks at both theories and, and there is truth, there is some truth in the views there's no question that greed, oppression, exploitation of the poor is the reason for poverty and inequality. The world is filled with sin. The world is cursed and we are descendants of the fallen race. Christianity looks at capitalism and says that there is great measure of truth in it. There's, obviously, there is less poverty in regions where there is freedom to work, there is freedom to produce, than in areas where the government controls the factors of production. So there is certainly some truth in the answer given by the, by the capitalist. But Christianity looks at both theories and acknowledges that they've left out one thing. They've left out the sovereignty of God. God determines who will be wealthy and who will be poor. God determines which nation will prosper materially and those that shall not. God rules sovereignly of all the earth. God directs the affairs of every man and every nation. God has designed some nations to be rich and some to be poor. And you see, that is by God's determination. All these situations are obviously not cast on stone because God can enrich the poor, 
God can can take away the rich, uh, the wealth from the riches, and all this is traced back to God's sovereignty. And so the economic model takes God away from the formula, and they cannot possibly answer the problem of poverty and riches. And so this is one of the issues that resonates with believers. Some are rich, some are poor. And James is addressing here the poor, notice, lowly brother. It means a person of humble circumstances, a person of low social status. Speaks of people who are considered unimportant in the society. So James is addressing Christians whom he says they are lowly. He's speaking here of those who are poor, those who are downcast. He's speaking to the followers of Christ. And probably these are Jewish Christians who are persecuted and scattered around the world. It's prob probable that most of them were in better situations prior to the persecution and after the persecution they were driven away from their homes and they lost everything that they had so they find themselves discriminated against because they are Jews so this brother is poor crushed oppressed they are lowly and these people are willing to suffer because of Christ rather than renounce their commitment to Jesus Christ. These are Christians who are not ashamed to speak of Christ because they are open in their profession of Christ. They are open to defend Christ if it means losing their job, being maligned by family members, losing the reputation of the society. And so you may wonder this morning, if you are poor, verse 9, what high position are they talking about there? What exaltation? Because for the most part, this world looks at the poor and they tell them, you're not worth it. They, they don't pay attention to the poor. Yet God looks at this poor brother, poor Christian, uh, as a peculiar peculiar person as a child of the king this poor person has no position has no wealth probably he does not have the esteem of everyone else he does not have the power this person is standing in the midst of nothing and can say by the miracle of grace of God I've been invited with a personal relationship with the King of Kings, with the Lord of Lords he's been made rich yet he has nothing so this seems to be a puzzle so this is a paradox and so our approach and attitude towards trial and the trial here being poverty and riches will determine our behavior
towards it. And as we saw there last week, the wisdom that is required, even in the midst of this trial, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of riches, is, is required. And it's available in the asking and in the believing. So when you read verse 9 to 11, it seems to be out of place. Notice in, in most of your Bibles, there's a paragraph shift there. Yet James is not introducing a new theme. He's giving here an illustration in which wisdom changes our response in life. If we have wisdom in life, we will think of our riches, our wealth, in a way that is different from those who do not know the wisdom of God. During this period of writing, poverty was a big problem. There was no middle class. You are either very rich or very poor. You are either a servant or you are a master. If you notice in James chapter 5 verse 1 and 2, he goes back again to that theme and he says, James chapter 5 verse 1 and 2, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. And then he goes on talking about what the rich used to do. The rich used to oppress the, lab the laborers. And so he says the wisdom from God will help the rich to view their circumstances from a biblical standpoint. And so the question I ask, how do you interact with your present circumstances? Whether you're rich or you're poor, how do you interact in a way that glorifies God? So God is telling us in verse 9 to 11, We respond to the circumstances. Not based on our understanding, but based on God's word. What James is urging us here, brethren, is totally contrary, totally opposed with how society handles things. It is totally different to what is advocated today. This is an echo to what Jesus Christ says. He says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, do not lay up you do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also many people think that life is all about wealth that human existence is all about wealth yet we see here that both the rich both the uh, the poor they are to see their circumstances in view of God's big picture they need to step back from their circumstances 
and, and view it from a godly perspective. And for that to happen, you need wisdom to have a proper perspective of life. The rich and the poor there need to view success in light of human frailty. They are to view success knowing that eventually everything will crumble and somebody else will transcend whatever else you have already done. The riches of the rich, they are put in a hole because God in these verses reveals to them that their riches are worthless. That's why they are humiliated. In the history of the church, the church has grown significantly, not among the rich, but often among the poor. Why? Because it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who are rich are used to buying themselves into everything. There is no council that they cannot sit on. There is no car that they cannot buy. There is no land that they cannot own. Or so they assume. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 to 31. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 to 31. This is talking to believers. And Paul says to the Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God and chance by saying and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord and so James is telling the poor there let, a, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation let the poor the person in humble circumstances to take pride in their circumstances. He's not telling the poor that if you apply this message, you're going to become rich, just like many churches preach that today. Rather, James is saying to the poor to think of poverty from a proper perspective and realize that you're rich. He doesn't say that there's any problem with the poor now, does he say that there's any problem with the rich? He says, a person in humble circumstances, a lowly brother, to boast, to glory, to rejoice in his exaltation. Jesus says that you'll always have the poor with you. There's an acknowledgement from our Lord that there will be poor people in our society. And what is important for the poor is a proper perspective of how to deal with the circumstances. When the poor man understands that true riches does not consist of the abundance of possession, then he can continue with his journey of faith 
because his eyes have been opened to what awaits him in heaven. On the other hand, the rich man goes on with God, with all the temptations, with all the snares that are related with riches, because God has opened the hollowness of his riches. God has shown him that his riches are worthless. And that's why he's humiliated in verse 10. And so based on your circumstances, the circumstances expose us to different temptation. For the poor, it is easier for them to fall into despondent, to be dep depressed, to be discouraged, to, be power to feel powerless. On the other hand, it's also easier for the poor to bask in his poverty, to think of himself as worthless, as, as unequal in the eyes of the Lord. It's easier for them to wear poverty like a badge of honor. And so wisdom of the Lord comes to the poor man to show him the vastness of what he has in Christ. And the wisdom comes to the rich man to show him what? The hollowness, the worthlessness of everything that he has. Everything that he thought was significant in life. This is an area which is easiest to speak than to do. It's easier for us to hear of this message and think that it is speaking to a particular brother or a sister. Think of yourself in either of these situations because all of us will either be rich or poor. The kingdom of God is where the weak can say they are strong. The kingdom of God is where the poor can say they are rich in light of God's wisdom. And without Christ, we will never have this. The poor should realize that God is doing, in, what God is doing in his life through the poverty that they're experiencing. So poverty is a trial. And if you're struggling in it, you need to ask God for wisdom. You should not be like the double-minded man, a person divided in his loyalties. One time professing Christ, the other time trusting in his, in his arm of the flesh. If you're double-minded, it is easier for materialism to come. And materialism has a strong magnet so that you're constantly pulled back to the things of the world and you turn out to be a double-minded man and stable in all your ways and you shall suffer the consequences of it notice that he does not say that their present circumstance is unjust he does not call on the Christians to rise up against the oppressors and demand justice he does not tell them to organize a march and to protest and to raise themselves out of poverty through political means he tells them rather to understand this that it is the hand of God and to be grateful to all the spiritual blessings that God has given them so the poor man the lowly brother is to take pride and to boast boasting 
is often used in a negative way in scripture but in other occasions like this it is used in a positive way it is not sinful Paul talks about boasting in the cross Paul boasts in his, boasts in his weaknesses so boasting is, is never wrong it depends on the object of boasting and so it's important for us as we boast, we ask ourselves, what are we boasting about? And why are we boasting about it? When we are boasting in ourselves, in our possessions, in our talents, it's always wrong. When our motive for boasting is to lift ourselves up and to bring others down, to make ourselves feel better, that's the kind, wrong kind of boasting. But when our boasting is in Christ, in the riches of His grace, then we can call upon others to trust in Him. And so, the, the lowly brother there, boast, has a reason to exalt himself. Why? Because God has a special love for the poor. God has a special love for the poor. Uh, Luke chapter 4 verse 18 to 19 Luke chapter 4 verse 18 to 19 Christ in the reading of, of Isaiah uh, in the synagogue says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of, of God's favor. Christ was sent to preach the message of the gospel to the whole world. But there's a special care, there's a special focus about the poor. There's a sense in which poverty brings someone, brings someone to humility and a recognition of poverty of spirit even in the passage we've read in first corinthians paul saying uh, chapter 1 verse 26 following paul, paul is saying not many of you were wise not many of you were powerful and rich there's a special kind of love there's a special care that god gives to the poor that's because they, they have nothing to boast about. Yet, God gives them a reason to glory in Him. And this is very backward in the way people think. There's a special attention to those who are poor. And yet, all of us, in spite of our backgrounds, are saved by the same Christ. Every believer is a heir of God. We are made to be prince. We are brought to a position that is higher than any human authority. You can take the richest man in the world and you can take the poor man in the world who is a believer and the poor man exceeds the rich man 
because he is blessed with every spiritual blessing that is there in Christ. The poor man can see clearly that he is a stranger on this earth and that he is chosen by God. And so material poverty, the lowly brother, because of his circumstances, the circumstance enables him to have the spiritual richness which a rich person cannot have. Because a humble status is, is linked to humility of spirit. There's something about poverty of resources that tends to bring a person to humility of heart. And so in order for us to please the Lord, we need poverty of spirit. And poverty for a believer is, is surely a test of faith. And that test of faith develops to perseverance and, and Christ-like maturity. So poverty is one of the tools the Lord uses to develop believers to maturity. And the believer is shown to glory in nothing that he has but in Christ alone. And so our status is in heaven. Our status is not physical, it is spiritual. And in heaven, the Lord says, some will be rulers over many things. And some will be rulers over few things. And your status in heaven is based on how obedient and submissive you are in whatever circumstances the Lord put you. In heaven, the governor, the president, the deputy president will not hold those positions there unless they were faithful Christians. And so our heavenly status has nothing to do with our present circumstances. Often we are so preoccupied with our physical state, our material state. And often we lose sight of serving the Lord. Often we are so busy making money, thinking about money, that we have no time to serve the Lord and to serve His people and to advance His kingdom. You see, even in the position in the church, it, it does not depend on the wealth that you have. The deacons are not chosen because they have a lot of money. No, it's based on their spiritual maturity, based on the qualifications in First Timothy chapter 3. And so the offices of the church are not determined by social status. They're not determined by money. And the poor as well are qualified in those positions. And so wealth is not a barrier to the way that we grow. And many a times, it's the poor who attain higher spiritual maturity than the rich. And so, there are many reasons why the poor should exalt in the poverty. Often, most of us do not know the grinding poverty of those who are poor. To not know where your next meal will come from. 
to wait for several days before having a meal. We hardly know about that. And that makes us to be selfish, to be self-centered, to think of us and to think of ourselves. And to fail to realize that even the breakfast that you had in the morning, it is by the grace of God that he provided for you. And so the lowly brother should boast in his exaltation. Secondly, we see the glory of the rich man in verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation, because like, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The rich here is told to glory in the things that are totally opposite to how we view things. The poor is called to glory in his poverty. Because Christ has blessed him in a more superabounding way. While the rich, in verse 10, they are called to humble themselves. The rich should see their riches as a disadvantage in their spiritual sense, in their spiritual life. And so they must humble themselves before the Lord, lest the riches become a hindrance to their internal life. This passage is not saying that there's anything wrong with having riches. The issue here is to be ruled and to be controlled and to be dominated by the riches of this world. The issue here is to see Christ, is to see God as the treasure of treasures, as the gift of gifts. You see, James is not saying to the rich that there is anything wrong with them. James is not even saying to them that they should give away their, their riches and become poor. When wealth is our security, when wealth is our comfort, our dependence, we have banked in something that will never guarantee us eternal rewards. The richest man, you can imagine the richest man right now, probably is, the mo is one of the most powerful people, is one of the most popular people. But one day when they'll stand before the Lord, both of them will be equal. There'll be none who will be higher than the other one. And what James is telling us here, that riches can block us from spiritual blessings. Riches can become a barrier for us. And so the poor has an advantage over the rich in the eternal things. If you can remember the, the, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus Christ and he asked Christ what shall I do to to, to gain eternal life and Christ tells him to to sell everything that he has and give it to the poor and we're told that he went away sad he went away sad because his material worth was his barrier in coming to Christ for salvation 
And so it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to see the kingdom of heaven. And so in terms of the grace of God, in terms of the love of God, the present circumstances count for nothing. It is all worthless. The rich man should see his riches as fleeting. It says there for the... He should see his riches like a flower of the grass and she will pass away. If you, can look out, if you can look outside for a moment, you can notice that the grass is quickly drying up. Only a few months ago that the grass was green. And the rich man is told that his riches are like grass, are like the flower of the grass. And so the, the grace of the Lord puts the rich man and the poor man on a level playing field. The poor man is told to exalt himself. Why? Because, because of Christ, he is as equal as the rich man. So he's brought from a place of lowly to a place where he's given every spiritual blessing. And the rich man, he thought that his riches were, were worthy he realizes that his riches are, are hollow. They are worthless. And what is James saying? He's humiliated. Why? Because he put his trust in the wrong thing. And so he's brought law to a level of the poor man. They are equal in the eyes of the Lord. And so the rich man cannot merit salvation in another way that the poor cannot. The rich man still has to plea for the grace of God. And so this trial, the poverty and the riches, if you're poor, it should remind you that your poverty is only temporary. There's a world to come. This world is passing away. If you're rich again, you should be reminded that the riches are temporary. You should not put your security there. And often, tests and trials, they come our way to remind us and to show us whether we have put our trust in money. If God, if you had a lot of money and God allows you to have an health issue that cannot be treated with money. It's a way of reminding you that your money has limits. Your riches has limits. You cannot buy life. If death comes, you're taken away. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 11 says, Proverbs chapter 18 verse 11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. He says, for a rich man, his money is like a castle, his fortress. And a trial comes in a believer's life who is blessed financially, and God uses that trial to remind him that his wealth is worthless. And to show them that they had put security 
in their wealth. Wealth should also remind us that we will never go forever in our pursuit for money. We cannot secure our future with money. We cannot use money as our source of comfort, as a source of peace. There's only one who is our comfort. There's only one who is our peace. There's only one whom your future can be secured in. And that is Christ Jesus. And so stop pursuing things that won't last and lift your eyes and begin to pursue the things that are above. And so we need to consider every one of us that there is an ending struggle in our lives with materialism. Some equate wealth with spiritual health. Some see wealth and they see it as a source of God's favor. Some think that God wants them healthy and wealthy and it's lack of your faith that keeps you from all that. Yes, James says here that the poor are more advantageous than the rich. It is God who is sovereign in choosing who will be rich and who will be poor. And obviously we have ungodliness in both spectrums. I'm, I'm not saying that the poor people are the godly people, no. We're talking here about believers. He says they are the lowly brother. It's not just anyone. It's the Christian. And so our tendency often is to connect our spiritual things to material things. And that's the danger of covetousness. We must be careful to handle material wealth in a way that glorifies God. If God has blessed you with more, what does he expect of you? To give more for the advancement of his kingdom. The Puritans believe that we work. The first reason for working is for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. The second reason for working is not yourself. It's for the good of others. And then the third reason is for your good. And if you put your money in that order, that when you, when you earn from something, the first place you think about is to glorify God, to advance his kingdom. And then secondly, for the good of others. And then thirdly, it's for your good. It's so much easier said than done, really. And that's how the Puritans viewed wealth. And, and that helps us to avoid wealth being an idol to us. We give. The more you hoard, the more idolatry catches up with you. The more you give, the less idolatry, the, the less idolatrous money becomes. And so, equality is not called for in these passages. There'll never be equality in the distribution of wealth. There'll be those people who have more, there'll be those people who have less. 
And the issue here is to treat others equally. And everyone of us knows of someone who is rich, knows of someone who is poor. And so the last thing I'd like us to see there in, uh, in verse 11 is the glory of each of us. So I've spoken of the lowly brother, though I've intertwined with the rich. And then I've spoken of the rich person in verse 10, though I've intertwined a bit with the poor, to show comparison. And then verse 11 is the glory for each of us, whether rich or poor. We ought to view poverty in light of eternal riches made available in the gospel. James, as he's writing to, uh, to his audience, is not telling them to think of poverty and riches in terms of the economic uh, circumstances. Instead, he wants to, to help them see wealth and poverty in a theological sense, in a biblical way. And brethren, it's going to take wisdom from heaven for us to see wealth and poverty in a biblical sense. It's so hard for us to keep what is important, important in our life. Often things that are not important, they rise to the occasion where they become important in our life. And the things that are important, they descend to become unimportant. When you come to Christ, there's a sense, you have a sense of the thing that is most important in your life. When you're, when you're a fresh believer, you feel with amazing sense of your need. It's as if God has opened the curtains of the universe and you finally realize what life is all about. But sadly, we do not often stay there. Those things become familiar, they become regular to us, they become normal to us, and somehow, someway, they begin to descend to an importance. And the things that are not important in your Christian life, they rise to a level of importance. And I want you to ask yourself, what is important to you? What do you boast in? What do you pride yourself in? Can you stand back and say, this is what I want in my life. This is what is important in my life. This is worth living for. Where do you look for your deepest meaning? For your full satisfaction? Is what is important, important to you? Not only today, but Monday night, Friday evening, Tuesday morning. And in the midst of this, James is reminding them what is important in life and he says the sun rises with the scorching heat and it withers the grass its flowers falls and its beauty perishes so also the rich man fed away in the midst of his pursuits we live in a materialistic self-centered secular culture and, and often life is about the creation of pleasures. There's, there's no spiritual world. It's only the, the physical state that the society focuses on. The society looks at the poor man 
and they're not excited about it. The poor man is seen as he has nothing to boast about. He has nothing to celebrate. Brethren, if the game is material possession and self-pleasure, we have totally lost it. We cannot live in this materialistic, self-centered, secular culture without somewhat, somewhere being influenced by it. And the struggle to keep important things important is the struggle for every one of us. All of us need to, to be reminded by James this, mon this morning that, they, that there are things that are important that should be held as important and they should not descend as unimportant. Brothers, the, the day that we stand without nothing except the Lord Jesus Christ is the day that we can say I am rich, I am rich, I am rich. I'll ask you, what is important to you again? Where do you place your priorities? Do you think of the grace of God and your heart rises with joy? Or do you think of the money you are going to earn and your heart rises with joy? If you wake up in the morning and you receive an Mpesa text, does your heart leap with joy as much as you look forward to read the Bible? Brethren, we'll stand, we'll understand grace when we stand in the middle of nothing and say we are rich. We are rich to the point that we will never trade the treasures that are there in, in Christ to the treasures with the treasures that are that are there in, in the world. And so there's this struggle that is unending, the struggle of distinctions. And so there's nothing more important than to live for the purpose you are created for. What, why were you created? To glorify God. And that should be your sole purpose in life. There could be nothing more important than that. So it is grace. It's a glorious gift to the poor. A glorious gift to the rich. And it's the thing of utmost importance and that grace is the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 11 notice that the surrounding nature communicates to us what is important sun rises it withers the grass flower falls it beauty perishes and that is compared to the riches of the man and the idea here is the nature is enough to communicate to the rich man that all that he has is fading away. If, you, if you've seen a house that was built probably in the 90s and back then it was 
very beautiful, very majestic. Often than not, if you look at it right now, if it has never been renovated, it has faded away. And so, we need no more creation to tell the rich that his riches are, peri are perishing, are fading away. And so we need to guard our hearts, not to allow the unimportant things to rise to a level in which they control our heart, they control our desires. We need to watch ourselves that the temporary things do not replace the spiritual things and the eternal things. That we do not lose sight of what is important. We should not lose sense of what is important. We should be reminded that we stand with nothing before our Redeemer. And do you live with a keen sense of what is important to you? It's important for us to get on our knees before our gracious Redeemer who has covered our sins and ask for forgiveness. How often we get it wrong? How often we celebrate the temporary more than the eternal? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Can we really say that as... Can we really say this is our view of life, our perception of life, that we focus on the things that, that, we focus on the things that are unseen? May the Lord help us really to live in view of what is important. That God will be central in all our desires, in all our priorities in life. And sometimes we often think that our circumstances will change. That maybe one day I'll become rich. You may be going through a financial pressure and you think that your life will be better if I had more money. If I had more money, I will not be discouraged. I will not be depressed. What if God doesn't want to change your circumstances? What if God wants you to learn and to grow into spiritual maturity through those circumstances? Because here, the poor is not told to become rich. The rich is not told to become poor. The, rich is, the poor is told to glory in his poverty. And the rich is told to be, to be humiliated because he has trusted in the hollowness of his riches. And we see that God's concern is not the circumstances. God's concern is for your spiritual good. If you say you're going to quit this, you're going to quit your job because of the pressure you're getting because you want a peaceful life. You see, you're driven by your circumstances. It, it, is it the will of God? Does it glorify God 
for you to quit that job. There are those who have money and they always find comfort in the next purchase. You see, even in our circumstances, God is showing us here that He is central. In your poverty, glorify God in your poverty. He should be central. In your richness, glorify God in your richness. He should be central. God is using poverty to remind the poor man, really, that there is something better. And the rich man is reminded that what he has is worthless. And the poor man sees himself in a high position. The poor man is reminded here that you are not alone. God is with you. You see, God is not lacking in power to give the poor man resources and riches. God is saying to the poor man, I want you to see yourself in the poor circumstances and look up from the low position and remember that I am God. And in poverty, in riches, in our circumstances, because both riches and poverty offer different temptations. The rich man obviously faces a temptation to rely on his resources instead of the Redeemer, instead of Christ. The rich man will often lean on the arm of the flesh, will lean in his own ingenuity instead of living his life in total dependence on the Lord. The rich man is tempted to run away further, away from God. Because he is doubly, doubling his dependence on himself. And God is saying here that his riches will pass away like a flower of the grass. And so our circumstances are an opportunity to demonstrate that we are God's people. That we really trust God. That we have genuine faith in him. That we are his children. our circumstances should be proved to us that we are not double-minded. We are not tossed back and forth. We need to respond in a way that shows we have real security, real comfort in God. And so are you going to see your circumstances? Sorry, are you going to see your position as a vantage point of circumstances or are you going to see your position from the vantage point of heaven when we fret in the midst of a trial where is our trust Proverbs chapter 30 verse 8 Proverbs chapter 30 verse 8 I'll, I'll begin from verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny 
them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And then notice the temptation that comes with richness and poverty. He says, Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So in poverty, we face sort of different kind of temptations as well as in, in riches. But in both circumstances, the believer should demonstrate trust upon the Lord. We should not be tossed to and fro. We should not be double-minded, unstable. And you see, what our circumstances do really, we experience the purifying grace of God. And the trials come to test you. And the trials sort of ask you, where do you get your significance from? Is your significance in your reputation so that the Lord sends you criticism? The Lord sends you someone who will slander you. And then you realize, I used to depend on my reputation. I had exalted myself. Is your trust in money so that when the Lord takes away the wealth and the Lord takes away your money it purifies you you become more Christ-like is your trust in the praise of men so that all of a sudden when men begin to criticize you it shakes you and you may wonder is God unkind no he's teaching you something that you've invested your joy in the wrong thing sometimes the Lord will take away what you glory in what you focus your energy your time in so that he may show you what is more important he may touch an area in your life to draw your attention and to show you really you're focused on the wrong thing. And so God allows a test in the life of a believer to enable them to see what they glory in. So trials do not only reveal what we glory in, they also instruct us on what we need to glory in. Trials are teachers between the temporal and the internal. Temporal things, they don't last. Man is referred to as like a vapor. Man is a nose full of breath. Man is like a mist. Our lives will not go on forever on this earth. And you see, God is gracious and loving to his people. And he allows things to come into their lives. To remind them that they will not last forever is in that love brethren because if you invest in something that you think 
will last forever. What are you doing? You're putting your money where rust and moth are going to destroy. But if you invest in something that is eternal, you're putting your treasures in heaven where rust and moth shall never devour. Sadly, this is one of the areas in modern Christianity we've lost, we've lost sight of. We don't see ourselves as pilgrims passing through this earth. And so may the trials help us to see the difference between glorying in God and glorying in man. When we feel strong that we're in control of our circumstances, that we are in control of our business and our future and our career. And so the Lord comes and He squashed everything. everything. And sometimes He may allow sickness to come so that you don't go on with your studies, for example. And you may wonder, is, is God loving? Yes, He's loving. Because what you're going through, what the Lord gives you, be it sickness, be it poverty, is accomplishing a greater work than what you had before. And so you're not very strong, my friend. You're not very wise. You're not very noble. You're a mere man, and you need to fix yourself, you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and to glory on the issues that are, that are eternal. And so how much do we rely on ourselves? Do we believe that we are in control over everything? If we do that, we are deceived. So trial has a way of shaking you and showing you that God is in control. That your life is in his hands. And so set your affections on him. I'll be mistaken if I put all my affections on my family because my relationship with my family is as long as the Lord gives it, gives it to me the best thing I can do is to enable them to love God to love Christ to love that which is eternal and sometimes God may take away someone in our lives to show you what to show you that you are glorying in that person you are depending on that person and God is purifying you. If he has to take your money for you to rely on him more, then poverty is good for you. If he has to take your wealth, health for you to rely on him more, then health is... Uh, uh, so, so sickness is more valuable than your wealth. And so trials have a way of purifying and it enables us to focus on the greatest treasure. I have four applications, questions, as I conclude. The first one is, where are you in your life and what are you focused on? Are you panicking? Are you losing sleep? Are you afraid? 
Are you worried? Are you focused on the things that are passing away? Or are you troubled by the things that are eternal? My call is to for you to lift up your eyes and focus on him. Secondly, what are the unique temptations that you need to get yourself in the present circumstances? You need to get rid of yourself in the present circumstances. Is poverty a temptation to you? Is wealth a temptation to you? And in view of your circumstances, are you relying on the arm of the flesh? Or are you relying on the Lord? Thirdly, are you seeking to see your circumstances from God's perspective? Do you allow your circumstances to dictate your uh, perspectives? Or do do you allow the word of God to shape your perspective on how you see things? Then lastly, do you want to demonstrate in the midst of a trial that your faith is genuine? Do you want the Lord to use your circumstances right now as an opportunity to declare to the world that you are different? To show the world of the testimony of God's grace in saving you? May the Lord indeed help us to live and to have a proper perspective on these circumstances. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We pray that you may sanctify your people by your truth. Help us to not merely be hearers of your word, but also be doers. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.